Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Two years ago, if you had convened a focus group to give an opinion on Bill Gates and his foundation, the response would have been overwhelmingly positive. Today, not so much. While the divorce, the behavior with respect to female employees, and violation of rules that any employee would know, much less the company's founder, former CEO, and chairman, and his condoning of poor behavior by his associates would be enough in and of itself to change public opinion. Add to this his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, and the picture gets darker. But my guest, investigative journalist Tim Schwab, argues that none of this is as bad or as global as some of the actions of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Tim Schwab joins me to discuss how Bill Gates has used his position to shape public policy, what he sees as many conflicts of interests of Gates and his foundation, and how legitimate criticism of power is being positioned as conspiracy. Tim Schwab is an investigative journalist whose work on the Gates Foundation has led the way in uncovering many heretofore unknown aspects of the foundation and its governance. He was recently signed to write a new book about Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation entitled The Good Billionaire, and it is my pleasure to welcome Tim Schwab here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Really appreciate this opportunity. A couple of years ago, or even maybe just a year and a half ago, if you had asked people about tech billionaires, Bill Gates would have been the good billionaire, the one people had the least criticism of and and, and felt the most positive about. What happened? Um, Yeah, it's been so remarkable. Having covered the Gates Foundation as closely as they have for the last year and a half or two years is to see that the media narrative shifting so uh, stunningly in, in the last month. Um, It's exactly as you say, um, for years, as we've seen the sort of growing criticism about wealth and economic inequality in this country, and people point to the um, the billionaire class, um, and, you know, the the perennial counterpoint was Bill Gates, who, yes, he is a multi-billionaire many times over, but he has turned his fortune towards charitable ends to create the the Gates Foundation which we've been told ad nauseum by the news media over the last decade is you know, saving lives and um, can do no wrong. Um, and that's all come, started to come crashing down in, in somewhat of a narrow sense. Um, you know, somebody told me, one of my sources told me the other day that these kind of private scandals bring down uh, exposed corporate crimes. So the Gates Foundation isn't a corporation, but it is the world's most visible, philanth- visible philanthropy, and it, it functions um, in many ways less as a charity than it does as a political organization. And, and what you're seeing in all of the recent reporting, it started out with you know Bill and Melinda Gates were getting divorced, and then the news media was asking you know why was this divorce, and then all of the allegations came out about sexual misconduct or sexual allegations um, that are you know, go back to Microsoft, the Gates Foundation. I do want to say that, you know, Bill Gates has denied the allegations, but the reporting is coming fast and furious, and it's absolutely changing the way that we think about Bill Gates. And I think also it should be an opportunity for us to to start rethinking, um, uh, you know, the Gates Foundation also. One of the ironies, or one of the interesting things about this is that if you go back and read the reporting in the 80s when Microsoft was coming into its own, when the company was going public, etc., that Bill Gates was seen as, as an evil figure at the time. I mean, quite different than, than we were talking about before in terms of the billionaire class. 
that that there was this this sense of monopoly that Microsoft had, the way he took the company public. It was a very different image that existed at that point. Yeah, and in, in some ways we're coming full turn. So, um, and, it, and and you can't underestimate Bill, Ga- Bill Gates um, or his ability to reshape his public image. So, as you state, he is, you know, he was one of, uh, remains one of history's most storied monopolists through his work with Microsoft. Um, and it was not that long ago, though many of us for, have forgotten it, that he was one of the most reviled people on earth. You know, people threw pies at Bill Gates. Right. He was widely ridic- ridiculed and lampooned um, as this kind of greedy corporate monopolist. Um, and then around the as as the the kind of antitrust um, trials and allegations were mounting in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, Bill Gates turned his attention to philanthropy, and you know over the next few years um, played less and less of a role in Microsoft and more and more of a role as a philanthropist. And he had so much money, you know, he could quickly became the world's largest philanthropist, creating uh, what we know today is the Gates Foundation. And, you know, for in the, in the early years, it's interesting is that the, the news outlets like The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal, they actually did put a critical lens on this. It was this just a public relations effort by Bill Gates to remedy his public reputation. Are there ways that the Gates Foundation is actually serving the interests of Microsoft or the interests of Bill Gates or the you know Gates personal wealth? But that kind of critical reporting through the 2000s, it slowly receded until about you know 2010 or 11, and then it almost disappeared completely. Um, and in the absence of that critical reporting, you've seen the the Gates Foundation expand its size and scope in ways that are really hard to uh, that don't clearly fall under a common definition of the of the word we use charity, even though that's how it's how it's been marketed as. It's interesting because in a way, I mean, we talk about it coming full circle, that if you look at the Gates Foundation in a certain way, it's almost a monopolistic effort with respect to global health. Yeah, and that's a word that um, you don't hear um, these kind of critical viewpoints often in the news media, but they certainly, uh, these perspectives do abound. You hear people describing the Gates Foundation as a monopoly and a bully. Um, it's not an uncommon criticism, even though we don't hear it often. Um, academics, like in the, in the social sciences, for example, uh, anthropologists, sociologists who look at the Gates Foundation, they use that word to describe the Gates Foundation because of the immense power and influence that it has in these fields like global health, um, where um, you know they fund every all the stakeholders who are working in this field they fund the world health organization they fund the leading universities they even fund news outlets to report on global health npr has its own um a whole reporting section about um global health and development that is underwritten in part by the gates foundation um so through their their financial giving um you know what we call charity uh, what they're actually doing is acquiring a great deal of influence over the public discourse, and that allows them to shape the agenda, to shape the priorities, to shape how we think about the field. On the other side of the ledger, though, are they doing work that nobody else is doing or that nobody else would do if they didn't exist? Well, at this point, you know, and that's a, and that's a, a problem right now as we're thinking about the crisis that the Gates Foundation is going through, that if the Gates Foundation just disappeared, you know, that would be bad for the field of global health, which is so dependent on the Gates Foundation's funding. Um, 
but I mean, th- that highlights what that highlights is not that, um, you know, th- that we've become, we've created an unhealthy dependency on the Gates Foundation that in a lot of ways, the work it's doing is really probably the work that government should be doing. Um, but the fact that we've ceded so much of this, um, the public policy arena to the Gates Foundation, um, you know, that that's a problem. Um, so yeah, maybe they are doing, uh, funding a lot of work that wouldn't otherwise be done, but they're also creating this undemocratic channels that puts them at the center of the public policy discourse instead of, um, especially um, in the ways that they work in the developing world, for example. Is it fair to say, though, that that because they have had this extreme focus, at least as it's been reported, on the metrics of what they're trying to accomplish and the efficiency, arguably, of what they're trying to accomplish, that they're doing it in a way that I think most people think would be better than the government trying to do it? Yeah, I mean that's the perennial. I guess that's the, the I guess that what you would call the neoliberal argument that the private sector is just more more efficient at getting things done, um, and that the Gates Foundation is um, more capable at managing global health or the pandemic response or U.S. education or African agriculture or any of the areas where it works, where the Gates Foundation just brings brings together this nimbleness and this efficiency of, of the private sector to do that work. Um, but to make that argument, we have to have a really clear and robust evaluation of, of the work that it's doing, which doesn't exist. Um, so there is a lot of um, reports out there about the millions of lives the Gates Foundation is saving and all the good, uh, the good effects of, of the Gates Foundation's work. But a lot of it is funded by the Gates Foundation. There is not, there is not this robust, independent body of research that can clearly point to um, all the benefits of the Gates Foundation that are often attributed to the Gates Foundation. So I think that's one real blind spot in this argument that of the of the Gates Foundation sort of private sector efficiency. And I guess the the thing that feeds that, and interested in your take on it, that that the government response or what people perceive to be the government response to the pandemic further fuels this idea that that the private sector could do a better job. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a perfect storm um, of the pandemic response where Trump was not responding uh, responsibly or appropriately. He was trying to downplay um, the the pandemic. Um, uh, we learned that later. Uh, that reporting came out later that he was actually purposely trying to downplay the severity of the pandemic. And in this vacuum of, of real leadership, you have somebody like Bill Gates who shows up with his you know, big ideas, and he can sort of assert himself and become this first mover in the pandemic response. Um, but the pandemic response that he's presided over has been has played out in some really nightmarish ways, where um, you know the term "vaccine apartheid" gets bandied around quite a bit, and I think that's a, a fair description of what we've seen globally, where rich nations like the United States—it's like an embarrassment of riches, where we have. So many we have access to to vaccines. Um, you know, everybody can get vaccinated in this country if they want to. Whereas, you know, many or most poor nations have zero access to vaccines. Um, so, you know, the fact that Gates played that the Gates Foundation played such a large role in the pandemic response and it led to this outcomes. We gave them so much credit on the front of the pandemic. He was Bill Gates was on CNN with Anderson Cooper constantly. He was in the news constantly taking credit for his leadership. But, you know, if Bill Gates wants to be a leader, you know, part of leadership is also taking into account for failures, which he and the foundation have been unwilling to do. 
we've had a really, um, you know, inequitable um, and, and terrible outcome to the pandemic response. Um, and I think the Gates Foundation, if they're a serious organization, they should um, t- have some take some accounting for, for, for these failures. And how does that sit side by side in, in looking at something like the failure of the CDC, you know, as, for example, as Michael Lewis details it in his book, which is just devastating in terms of, of how badly the government in the form of the CDC messed up? Yeah, I, I haven't read Michael Lewis's book. I mean, to be sure, there's plenty of blame. Uh, there's plenty of incompetence. There's plenty of bad actors um, involved in the pandemic response. And there's there's plenty of greed and, and plenty of reflection and soul-searching that a lot of us look, could do about, about how all this played out. But, you know, whatever you want to say about the CDC or the federal government, there it is at least, at the very least, it's a democratic process. It happens through their uh, accountability. There's checks and balances. There's some level of transparency. You can file a Freedom of Information Act request to find out what the government was thinking, what the government was doing. None of those, none of that, those features exist around a private billionaire philanthropy. Um, you can't um, really. There aren't these mechanisms. Don't exist around the Gates Foundation. So um, you know, trying to you know, on the back end now, trying to interrogate their role in the pandemic response, for example, you're. Um, you know, just, just trying to at, raise those questions or do that investigation is so much more difficult than investigating, for example, the CDC. And what that highlights is the undemocratic model of power um, of the Gates Foundation. We can't elect or unelect Bill Gates. He's just here, and he's going to take as much power as we, as we give him. And over the last decade, we've given him a lot. Talk a little bit about the way that power has exercised itself, particularly with respect to shaping public policy for the benefit of the foundation, as you see it? Well, I don't know that it's um, if it's shaped it to the benefit of the foundation as much as it steered the world into the um, the, the worldview or the ideology of, of Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, you know, Gates comes into the public policy arena with, um, you know, a real penchant, for example, for technology and for patents, which comes from his days at Microsoft. So he's pushed. Um, I haven't taken a close look at, at Gates and U.S. education. That's coming, for example. But I talked to enough scholars who said that he's tried to push education in the classrooms in a way that clearly showed that bias. Um, certainly he's done that in fields like agriculture. Um you know, and that's fine, and there's maybe a time and a place for it, but when you have somebody like Bill Gates, who's, who's just one individual who's able to really shape um, entire fields, um, th- then it's, it's another level of influence than, than you or I have, and that's because of the enormous wealth that he has and because he's able to channel that wealth into power through um, through philanthropy. It's interesting, you know, we talk about monopoly, as, as we did before, and, and you bring up the issue of patents, that his actions that he took at Microsoft back in the 80s and what he's done with the foundation, that there's really a clear pattern with respect to the way he operates. Yeah, um, so that's been a real feature of Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation's work in the pandemic. Um, it, to not to get too into the weeds, but uh, a problem in the pandemic response. So we have these vaccines. This is the cure for the um, the, the pandemic for the coronavirus. We, if we can get vaccines, we can stop the coronavirus. But the reason we can't get uh, vaccines out widely to people is because we don't have enough supply. And why don't we have enough supply? Because we don't have enough manufacturers. And why don't we have enough manufacturers? 
because the vaccines that we have, the handful of vaccines that we have are um, controlled through patents and exclusive licenses. It's not that any capable manufacturing facility any in the, anywhere in the world can just start producing these vaccines. Um, and you've had a number of facilities around the world talking to the news media saying, hey, we have idle production uh, capacity here. We could be producing vaccines, but we can't because we can't access the vaccine technology. And so the, the real sticking point in this d debate is around the patents and the intellectual property. And Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation has used its bully pulpit to defend that model um, in, in ways that, you know, a lot of public health experts now are saying was really kind of um, is, is what uh, a, a main source of the problem of why we haven't been able to produce more vaccines. And so, so now you also have countries all over the world now that are actually mounted a formal challenge to waive those patents and intellectual property. Joe Biden, the president of the United States, at some point, actually, um, a few weeks ago, he uh, publicly supported this effort. And after the tide, that really changed the tide. And suddenly the Gates Foundation came out with this mealy mouthed, um, you know, late stage, ninth innings uh, support for, for waiving the patents. I wonder, though, if what changed the tide, and I agree with you that it has changed dramatically, but I wonder to what extent the tide was changed by all of these other personal issues surrounding Gates and his inability to defend his position because of that. Yeah, it is so strange, this sort of confluence of, of uh, media narratives that came to play this spring. Um, right before the divorce announcement, you were, the news was coming out about this issue about vaccine apartheid, and, and journalists were finally putting a, a – the, a critical lens magnifying glass to the Gates Foundation's role in the, the IP and, and the patents issue. And then suddenly on top of that, you have the divorce announcement. And um, in a way, though, the divorce announcement and these allegations of um, sexual impropriety surrounding Bill Gates has kind of been a distraction, though, from the Gates Foundation, because now we're, we're so interested in the details of Bill Gates' personal behavior that I think in some ways, it's been a distraction from uh, the work of the foundation and the failures and the controversy of the foundation. And, and that's what I was trying to do with my recent essay in The Nation is to say this is a, a rare opportunity that we're putting a critical lens on Bill Gates, and we should not squander that opportunity. We should take a step back and widen the lens and see that it's not just about Bill Gates' personal behavior with you know women in the workplace or allegations of, of of his personal behavior, but it's also about um, you know the Gates Foundation and and the power that it wields, uh, or and, and the abuses of power that you could see surrounding the Gates Foundation. Is there a danger that the unraveling, and whether it's a public relations unraveling or a literal unraveling, of aspects of the Gates Foundation will have an adverse effect on global public health? Yeah, I mean it's it's. It's like I said earlier, there is a widespread dependency right now on the Gates Foundation. Um, you know, someone or many people, I should say, many of my sources have explained it to me that if you're not if you're working in global health and you're not directly funded by Gates, then you're only, you know, one degree removed from Gates funding. Um, so everybody's funded by Gates uh, in one way or the other. So, yeah, if um the Gates Foundation were to disappear tomorrow, that would create major problems in global health. Um, but that's not that's not an argument to say that we need to preserve the current model of the Gates Foundation. It's to say that, well, how did we ever get into a situation 
where two people have so much power over such a vital field. Uh, why do Bill and Melinda Gates, why have they, how have they created the, such dependency on their, their billionaire philanthropy? Is that a good model of governance? You know, suddenly now you have these Bill and Melinda are, are getting divorced and the foundation is in a public crisis and, you know, everything is, there's all these questions surrounding the future of the foundation and whether we'll continue to support this work. How did we end up in this situation where we thought this was a good model? Um, it's clearly, um, this is a moment of, of reckoning where we should understand that this is a terrible model of governance. Um, and we should rethink um, how we got to this place and, and think about uh, a better way forward. If we look at the origins of, of the foundation and how the power came to be accumulated over time, did they simply or did Gates realize this was an unfulfilled need and that this was an area that he could take over? Um, yeah, I mean, sources have told me in my reporting that, you know, the billionaire philanthropist class, they like to kind of stake out their own territory. So if Bill Gates is making a big play in global health, then or one corner of a global health, then another billionaire will examine a, a different corner. And um, I probably shouldn't cite this because I don't know all the details. But I think if I'm not mistaken, Michael Bloomberg does a lot of um, his philanthropic work. He does a lot of that around non-communicable diseases like um, like obesity and tobacco, uh, things like that, whereas the Gates Foundation is focused on um, things like polio and malaria, um, and now they're doing um, you know, the pandemic response, of course. So, yeah, I think there is some um, idea um, that you know a billionaire with big ideas goes in and wants to find out um, how they can um, – really assert themselves in and fill, fill a gap that they see or do something new or do something different. So I think that does play into it, uh, sure. And I guess, is there a danger that if if these things blow up, as, as certainly this foundation might, that it's discouraging for other philanthropists and that that could have a negative effect over the long run? Is that a concern? Should that be a concern? It's interesting to talk about the, the foundation blowing up or unraveling. I guess we should address that. I mean, we, we don't really know what's happening with the Gates Foundation. So when the divorce happened, Bill and Melinda Gates gave this kind of – they telegraphed this business-as-usual message that they would remain co-chairs, and, and the foundation would continue. Um, you know, what I've argued uh, recently is that it's hard to – obviously, it's not going to continue, you know, you know business-as-usual. That's clearly having to change – and, you know, my view is I don't understand how, how Bill Gates can continue um, to be the face of the foundation, given all of these allegations of sexual misconduct. The Gates Foundation has manufactured such a strong brand, a uh, woman-forward brand, equity-centric brand, that these allegations just seem radioactive next to it. So the foundation is absolutely changing. Um, I don't know that it's going to um, – you know, dissolve or blow up so many different directions to go. Um, a week ago, I think the Wall Street Journal reported that they're considering um, developing an independent board, which is such an obvious step for them to take, something they could have done um, years ago. I mean, people don't realize, but it's, the Gates Foundation is a $50 billion organization run by three people, Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett. Any organization, institution, company of that size is going to, just as a matter of good governance, have a diverse and independent board. Um, you know, you should have 
you can just imagine the biases and blind spots and the problems that can emerge when you have three people and it's their money running this charitable foundation. So that's one obvious way that, that the foundation can change. And absolutely, I think that will um, this will be a learning moment for the world of philanthropy. Um, and, and maybe it's it's a way to think about creating separation between donors and charities. Um, you know, I just I just got off the phone with the source who was who was talking about this trend of of giving while living, not waiting until you die to give away all your money, which is fine and good, but it also creates an opportunity for the the donors or the benefactors to actually control how their money is used instead of passing it on to after they're dead to uh, a, a number of other people to figure out how to use the money. So, um, you know, maybe that'll raise some questions too about, all, you know, all the tech billionaires coming down the pike and, you know, um, is it, is it such a good thing for them to be giving away their money um, as philanthropists in, in ways that, that create so much uh, conserve and acquire so much power and influence for these, for these billionaires through philanthropy. Yeah. I mean, people already make jokes about Melinda Gates and, and Mackenzie Scott joining forces. Yeah. I haven't heard that. Um, yeah. Mackenzie Scott has gotten a lot of um, good press and credit for uh, giving away such a significant sum of money. It's more than maybe it's the, the more money than anyone gave away last year. Um, I can't remember the numbers, several billions of dollars. But the quirk of this is that at the, by the end of the year, she was richer than she started uh, because Amazon's stock went up so much. And it's the same phenomenon you see with Bill and Melinda Gates. Their personal wealth is increasing over time, not decreasing. You know, we hear ad nauseum in the news that they're plowing their fortune into solving the world's problems, but they're actually getting richer year over year. So I don't know. It's, it's a certain paradox in how this whole uh, billionaire philanthropy has been sold to us that really uh, needs reexamination. Talk about how Warren Buffett fits into this, because there, there's his control, you know, involvement in the foundation and the broader framework of this whole giving pledge, which is something that he and Gates cooked up. Yeah, this is such an interesting – I'm glad you brought this up. Um, so Warren Buffett is one of three trustees of the Gates Foundation, and he's one of three main donors. And in 2006, he pledged to give away most of his money. He's giving some to his kids' charities. I think each of his kids have a charity or several of his kids have their own charities. But most of the money he's giving to Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and that made him a trustee. And, you know, Warren Buffett is somebody who's had a very long career as an investor. He runs the company Berkshire Hathaway, and he's had a pretty squeaky clean reputation all these years. Not to say that there isn't plenty of room to criticize uh, the investments he's made, but certainly on a personal level, he's kind of enjoyed this squeaky clean reputation um, as kind of this grandfatherly figure that's long been – he'll do news interviews where he'll call for – more taxation of the wealthy, so on and so forth. And now he finds himself in a situation um, where he's at the middle of, well, he's not at the middle. His name hasn't been brought up too much, but his name is, he's one of the main donors to the Gates Foundation, which is in the middle of this really crushing public crisis. So what is Warren Buffett thinking about all of this? Um, I mean, he's given away tens of billions of dollars to the Gates Foundation, basically um, allowing Bill and Melinda Gates to use his wealth to advance their charitable mission. I mean, he's such, he's renowned for being such a prudent and cautious investor. You have to think that he's rethinking um, the, the money he's giving um, to the Gates Foundation and how the foundation is governed, how the foundation operates. 
Uh, it can only be a matter of time before um, he has to answer questions. I, I called uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway last week. I didn't get a response. But that is a big question. He has a lot of power over the foundation as a donor. There's a lot of money he's scheduled to continue to give to the foundation. Um, he's given $2 billion a year in the last few years. Um, so it's, it's a big and open question what Warren Buffett is thinking in all this. And finally, what is the best and worst case that you think can come from all of this exposure to the foundation right now? Um, I'd say a worst case is that somehow um, that we return to a business as usual scenario where um, the, the, the crisis and the allegation dies down and the Gates Foundation resumes uh, life as normal with Bill and Linda Gates. They're divorced, but they continue to run the foundation together kind of in the same way that they always have. Um, because that would fail, that scenario would fail to address a lot of the structural problems um, that have come to light related to um, billionaire philanthropy and the Gates Foundation, particularly. I mean, a best case scenario is you would suddenly have a very robust uh, public conversation about um, the Gates Foundation and the model of philanthropy it represents. There are so many um, ways to regulate and to reform philanthropy. You could even have uh, the dissolution of the Gates Foundation on the table, that it's just simply too big and too powerful to continue as it always has. Um, but I think that there's such an opportunity for Congress, for the IRS, for the Washington State's Attorney General, for the public to really think hard and think critically about the Gates Foundation. And it, for the best case scenario is that it really changes substantively um, in the years ahead. And of course, we, we can't underestimate, as you pointed out before, the ability of Bill Gates to change the public conversation and to do a really good PR job. Yeah, I mean, he has unlimited resources, and he has shown us before that he can transform his public image from one of the world's most reviled tech titans into one of the most beloved and warm philanthropists. So don't underestimate uh, what Bill Gates can do. And yeah, it's it's really interesting to see how this all plays out. Tim Schwab, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.